This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good day, greetings, hello, and welcome to Art at the End of the World, the podcast where we welcome artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. And my name is Mark Wigmore. Great to be with you. I am the host of the Oasis on the new Classical FM, and that wonderful organization is presenting this second season of the show distributed on the Zoomer Podcast Network. Hope you're well. Uh, I hope you've uh, maybe taken a chance to enjoy some of the previous episodes. We're already up to uh, episode four here, getting to the midway point, and I can feel it. (laughs) I can tell you. If you're new to the show, uh, this is where you're going to hear guests speaking about their contribution to the arts world, why they do it, what compels them, what makes them get up in the morning and create things, and then reflect the world around us and give voice to other creators. And that is certainly the case for today's guest Wayne Mingesha, the artistic director of Soul Pepper Theatre, which is known, of course, in Toronto, but across the country as a touring outfit, and even in New York City, where the theatre traveled to put on a review a couple of years ago. Then there was some trouble. You likely read about it, and now the organization is taking on a new day full throttle, and Wayne is a big part of that new day. She is a big thinker, an activist. She has lived a life pondering how theater can be an agent of change, and I knew I had to have her on the podcast. This has been many months in the making uh, for Art at the End of the World. Before we do anything else, I'll let you know that this episode is sponsored by Red Eye Media, a leading arts and entertainment communications company working with award-winning clients, including the Musical Stage Company, SummerWorks Performance Festival, and many others. RedEyeMedia.ca to learn more. And if you run a media organization or if you are an artist and you are looking for representation and people to help you out, Red Eye Media, a great place to go. Art at the End of the World also brought to you by Crow's Theatre, one of this country's most acclaimed arts organizations and based in Toronto's vibrant East End community at Carla and Dundas. Crow's Theatre creating unforgettable productions that examine and illuminate the pivotal narratives of our times. Crowstheater.com for info and tickets. And don't forget The Secret Life of a Mother by Hannah Moscovich, one of our great playwrights, is on stage now at Streetcar Crow's Nest. Go and enjoy the show at Crow's of course, at uh, Carla and Dundas. Great place to see it. Before we get to Wayne, uh, I do want to say a big thank you to last week's guests, Robert Lantos and Howard Shore. They've uh, worked together on a new film titled The Song of Names. But what treasure troves of information when it comes to Canadian cinema and international cinema and Hollywood. Both men so accomplished with what they've been able to do over the decades and decades. Robert Lantos, the super producer, filmmaker, at it for gosh, 50 years or something like that. And Howard Shore, everything from Saturday Night Live to Lord of the Rings and all his work with Martin Scorsese and David Cronenberg, just fantastic. So if you want to have a listen to those episodes, they are in the list wherever you enjoy podcasts. Okay, so Wayne Mangesha, a fascinating story, an accomplished artist, 
an activist and a community-minded curator and director. And for the last couple of years, maybe year and a half now, she's been the artistic director of Soul Pepper Theater Company. She's responsible for two of the most popular shows to come out of Canada in the last two decades, De Kink in My Hair, the Mervish Productions presentation of Trey Anthony's show, and uh, Trey Anthony back in the news doing some some work, but uh, Wayney was all over that one, and Kim's Convenience with Soul Pepper, and of course, Wayney had worked with Soul Pepper often in the past uh, in a different capacity than what she does now. But think about Kim's Convenience. Uh, it has gone on to such great things, a TV show, touring on Netflix. Her other recent work has been seen in New York City, Pasadena, garnering an NAACP nomination for Best Direction. She's been nominated for the Outstanding Direction Dora Award five times. She's been an instructor at the National Theatre School of Canada and was co-artistic director and teacher with the Mentoring Youth Project for seven years. In 2017, Wayney was one of the Women in View, Five in Focus, and was recently named one of the 50 most influential people in Toronto by Toronto Life magazine. And it was on this podcast that actress Karen Robinson named her one of the top five women to look out for in 2019-2020. So a full circle moment here. And uh, I think we can't gloss over an important side note, which is that Wayne took this leadership position with Soul Pepper at a crucial moment for the organization. She took the reins after former artistic director Albert Schultz stepped down amid accusations of sexual misconduct at the height of the Me Too movement in 2018. It was a very difficult and confusing time for Soul Pepper. But Albert stepped down right away, and the board made some significant changes. There was a very uh, public airing out of all the issues. And I think the organization did fairly well, given how tricky the press was around that time. And Wayney, I think, has been a strong, forward-thinking antidote to an otherwise bad situation. 2020 is the first season she has totally programmed, and she is currently directing Jesus Hop the A-Train on stage now at Soul Pepper. So a lot to cover here with Wayney. Let's get into it on Art at the End of the World. Somebody left a Fitbit at our place, and it's been tempting (laughs) just to throw it on and start. I guess it is a, I mean, technically, even with gender fluidity in your washrooms, it does look like a lady's Fitbit. So I think I'd feel a little odd. Mm. It's pink. <laughs> well, I wouldn't judge you. You seem like a busy uh, uh, person. Uh, maybe an Apple Watch is what you need. Yeah, I, I wonder if it would make it easier or if it would make just make me it depressed. worse. <laughs> yeah, because um, I think I would probably program it to always buzz. When I'm on the air, I sometimes wish I didn't have my email up at all because there's just this distraction of people asking questions and you know all that kind of stuff and and just wonder like as far as actual focus is concerned and what you're able to actually accomplish in a day like how much diversion there is in a day how do how do you how do you do in that yeah yeah i'm rolling we're rolling yeah um well it's an it's um it's a new muscle that i am uh I'm conditioning, yeah. you know, because it's a different rhythm than I used to have. I used to have a very clear rhythm as a, just a freelance director. Right. You, you, I obsessively research something. I go into rehearsals. I put everything into it. I think about it. I dream about it. And then I collapse after right. opening. 
Yeah. And that's uh, to some degree, I guess that's the actor's life. That's the director's that's life. That's the gigging like, life. You, you, you work so hard for a concentrated amount of time. And then with this, it's they need you Yeah, most yeah. days of the week. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. The next and regular have to wake up, and that goes in a yearly cycle as opposed to <laughs> yeah. like a chunk of a month or whatever. Absolutely. So yeah. you have to pace yourself and 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 figure out that new rhythm, which 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 is new, and it's been it's nice though because actually you know there's also you get the blues a little bit when you when you finish a show because you've created this family and this you've accomplished this thing with this group of people and. And then you like, okay, have a nice life. Yeah. It's been amazing. <laughs> it's weird. And, you know, you like to think that you'll come back and mm-hmm. have that relationship sometime again, even with that specific person or mm-hmm. what have you. But mm-hmm. it, so often is not the case. No, <laughs> no, I've been lucky to do a lot of remounts. And right. it's such an exciting thing as an artist to be able to go back to a work after having some distance from it. And that's, yeah, it's beautiful. So this is an adjustment. This is an adjustment. Yeah. It is um, an exciting one. And, uh, it was the first time, you know, the show I just directed, Streetcar, just closed. Yeah. And I was a bit nervous going into that with the workload and also the rehearsal on top of it. But what I found was that it actually gave me a lot of energy to be back in the rehearsal room, to be fed by all of those artists and to be having this dialogue, artistic dialogue in the day and then going up to my office and thinking about the administration and all of that that I had to do but it was it was really energizing it starts to make you reassess how much energy you're putting into the other thing too like I know Mm. I do that as well where you go okay if I was able to do two and I felt manageable Mm -hmm. you know what (laughs) why am I so worried you know when I've just got the one on my on my hands you know maybe I need to give myself some space or whatnot you know to make that work but I suppose you know if you love something, whether it be a show or a theater, mm-hmm. you know, you're always just going to give a thousand percent. And what, what difference does it really make? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My husband's reminding me. He's like, OK, this is not a gig anymore. Yeah. You know, you you have to pace yourself. A bit more of a marathon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So uh, Vancouver, that's where you're born. Is that right? That's where I was born. Yeah. I moved to Toronto when I was 14. OK. Mm-hmm. So you and I are both from the West Coast. I'm from Victoria. Are you? I, I did a stint in Victoria as well. Yeah, is that right? I'm Three not... and a half to four and a half. Yeah. What, what years would that have been? Oh, you want me to reveal my age? Well, I mean, we're both, I'm yeah. guessing we're similar. Yeah, so, yeah. oh God, that would have been in 1982. 82? Mm-hmm. You were a kid. Three and a half years old in Victoria, Vancouver. How was, what was that life? Vancouver life? Yeah, for you. Great. You know, I lived uh, blocks away from the ocean. Um, North Van? Kitsilano. Kitsilano, beautiful. Falls Kitsilano. Creek, Kitsilano. And then we moved to East Van as well. Okay. So I did both sides of Canby Street. Yeah. Uh, very different experiences. Totally. Um, but both really important. And yeah, it was I mean, nature, you know, it's. Uh, it's where, do, where does it sit in your head now? Because I think about this all the time. You know, I visit all the time because all my family's out there. Yeah. I have such mixed feelings about, especially Vancouver, because it's turned out to be quite a specific city Mm. it's the way it's grown Uh the social and cultural values there the fact that there's no major highways in the downtown Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. it feels like it's changed and it's people it's sought after every lots everybody wants to go there Mm -hmm. where does it um the one thing i always reflect on is that i think it changes your 
mind frame when the biggest thing in a city is a mountain yeah and not a building <laughs> that's something that i felt when i moved to toronto a lot, a lot of bridges over water yeah like you just the, the most powerful thing is not man-made yeah <laughs> and um so just something i don't know grounding about vancouver to me when i go back and do shows or is there anybody i still have family yeah, yeah i still have family there my husband worked out there for a long time. My husband's an actor, so right. he was shooting a show for a while there. And yeah. it was, uh, it's, it's great to be back there. It, it, it slows me down in a good way. And mom and dad were both from Ethiopia, is that right? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was the story there? Well, well, my father moved here actually when he was 14. Okay. Um, to study on the West Coast in a, at a school. Um, on his own? On his own. Okay. Yes. That's a big change. Yeah, yeah. He was the only one who didn't, you know, it's, he spoke English, but not, not so well. And uh, it was a private school. He def it definitely had a major effect on him. Was that a, a situation where his parents were like, okay, this is... His grandfather. This is a big chance for you. Yes, and, yeah. yes. So his, his grand, great-grandfather was the emperor of Ethiopia. I should probably reveal that. That's pretty he, incredible. Yeah, that's why he was sent, and many of the children were sent overseas to study. So he was one of them, and yeah, so he went to a private school on the coast of Vancouver, and... It's quite a lineage. It's not bad. That you carry around with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was the first to not grow up. The emperor died a couple of years before I was born. Right. So my father did grow up in the palace, and I grew up in Vancouver. Uh bit different very different yeah yeah and uh in fact i didn't even know my lineage until i was in grade two i found out from my teacher um who who talked about it in class one day because she saw my father on the cover of a newspaper how was that conversation when you got home <laughs> i mean you're only grade two so it's yeah, not like you're like hey come on yeah. this is an outrage no well and it was more black and white i was like mom am i a princess yeah that's all I wanted to know. Right. And she was like, well, no, yeah. not actually. <laughs> Let's just get that <laughs> out of the way. That. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you are. <laughs> but. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, my grandmother was. I found out at that point that my grandmother and her sisters were all still in prison and that there was a revolution, which is why my father never went back. Um, and, and the paper was uh, my father sort of appealing to the Canadian government to support him trying to get my his mother out of prison. So you're at an age there, six, seven years old, where that's a lot of information to download as just a, a young kid. Yeah, that's why they, they kind of hid it from me. Yeah. There's a lot going on. But then you're, you've got the rest of your life ahead of you. Uh, I'm sure you were curious and, and you know did your own research as time went along. I'm sure you filled in all the blanks at this point. It, was that something that had an effect on you in a, in a way that has pushed your life in certain directions? Is that how that's felt? I think so. I think story became sort of something of great importance to me because I had another story at that point in grade two. It was also the year of the famine in Ethiopia. Right. And We Are the World was like the hit song. And my story of my background was about famine. And because, I mean, I didn't know that my parents were working so hard um, and had all kinds of, they were involved politically, so much so that they didn't spend time talking to me about their background in their home, you know, because it was in turmoil. So I really learned about it through, you know, UNICEF and these campaigns for the famine. And so... 
So what was that experience? You know, I, I you and I basically I've been able to glean yeah, into this point where we're about right about right. the same age. So we're both looking at these images that are being broadcast all over the world. Was that something that you were able to comprehend at that point? Where connect the dots and say, my well, I had no choice. Yeah. It was exposed. Yeah. You know, it was also like a you know a lot of the jokes came out around that time with the kids of um, awful. Yeah, 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 and and so they knew I was Ethiopian, and yeah, it was a it was a lot of those that teasing, and so it came at a very particular time, like where that was I was sort of hiding from that heritage because I was embarrassed about it and, didn't, and my parents didn't understand that they needed to sort of give me the other narrative right it was actually really important at that time that narrative like any other narrative so when it found out from my teacher it opened up the door for me to ask questions and to learn more about my background and and the country and and it became really important to me and and also the understanding of multiple narratives became really important to me so all this happening in Vancouver, pretty young to take on all that information, not to mention just the classic bullying, teasing, you know, obviously racial overtones with kids just seeing what they're seeing on TV mm-hmm. and you end up being the, you know, the mm-hmm. poster kid. And I was one of three in the elementary school of color, period. Right. I, to this day, when I go out west, I mean, it's, it's better than it was, but I remember that mm-hmm. where... It felt like there was the one kid, mm-hmm. you know. That was me. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Yeah, I think it was. It makes you strong and it makes you um, appreciate stories, honestly. I can't, like, I think that's really what I got out of it. Right. Yeah. Without a diversity, you don't really, you don't kind of just come by stories of other people's experiences often and, and as easily unless right. you're being taught in school. Right. And so that was something for me. I just, it, it, it just, a real curiosity and appetite for story and for people's experiences. And that was because you had this incredible story uh, in your background. You were facing all sorts of challenges as this young person. You were trying to figure out your own history. And so that attracted you to other kids' stories? Or what was that? I think it did. I think it just also knew I was able to somehow have a bird's eye even at that young age uh, that like, oh my goodness, I didn't know this. And I've been hiding and been embarrassed about something that is much more complex than just this one piece of information that I've been that I've been I've gleaned from the news. Right, TV. That's it. And yeah. and so I think I just felt passionate about there being multiple voices, and and also understanding that at a young age, it's actually like stories are are important for people's health, right, and for cities' health to understand each other. It's um, a it's a subject we talk about. I mean, I called this podcast art at the end of the world because you know it's such a difficult moment Mm. and it's amazing to me that at a relatively young age you started to understand that storytelling is a cradle of empathy Mm -hmm. you know that we are better people when we understand each other and that a great piece of theater or any great piece of art but specifically theater can can really change our perspectives it can change our life which is intense it can change our lives it really can it's i mean it's I, yeah i feel a lot of it has the intention of being transformative for people yeah. and um and it's a place it's like one of the original places of a democracy you have different opinions on stage that you know a good play doesn't really it's not didactic it doesn't tell you what to think it a good play has both a great hero and a great anti-hero and many different perspectives and they're all dimensional they're you know they're not um 
they're complicated. What do you make of what's happening right now? We're seeing so many protests of certain speakers coming to town and, you know, universities getting on comedians and all these types of stories that we see in the news. And, you know, you just brought up an interesting point. All these different points of view are what makes a democracy rich. It's a tricky line. Mm-hmm. It's never not been. Yeah. You know, I but, like I like hearing a lot of different opinions. Sometimes it makes me pretty angry. Yeah. But but I, I think that's what a theater is supposed to do. Right. You know, I think we are angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if we're going to reflect our city, that needs to be it needs to be there. Because I think especially in this moment of social media where we can easily be in our bubbles. Yeah. It's necessary that these that, that it's that these bubbles are broken sometimes and that we create a platform where that can happen. So platform for everyone? Platform for me. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously uh, if there are things with the intention of, of hate or if it, gets, it goes against the law, I guess, right? That's not good. Yeah. And, and if it's to, if it's intention is to hurt and to, and to destroy. But I think we have to, yeah, we have to be brave and we have to be able to, to move towards the uncomfortable. I don't, I don't think any any change ever happened easily or, or with comfort. Do you see yourself as part of that change, the change that's in the air? I think the six or seven-year-old girl always aspired to be a part of it. You right. know, I don't think it's ever stopped for me. I've been involved in theater, but it didn't come because I was raised going to theater. I actually right. never was taken to theater as a child. Right. My parents were always political, and I always grew up you know, walking around the knees of a bunch of people talking very intensely about something that they were going to rally around. That's always been a part of my life. I'm an only child. There was never me and my siblings playing toys while the parents in the living room were having these political parties. I was in the vault. I was always there. Um, and they sort of talked to me like an adult. And See, what's interesting to me about that, I, I my father in particular was quite political, a heavy union, NDP, stalwart, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, for me, my big problem was, okay, I've got all this political talk. I, I, the comprehension level was difficult for me at that age. It sounds like you were able to formulate some ideas pretty early on. Yeah, I think my parents, you know, it was, it was quite intense. What they were going through it was pretty clear. You know, it was the Red Terror in Ethiopia, which was very bloody. And yeah. they, it was not a lot of gray. Right. <laughs> um, the particular political movements that I was privy to. Right. So this um, is how we feel as a family, and we're very close to it. Yeah. And and and, and you know, literally, people were dying in right. my family. You right. know, um, or imprisoned. Um, so it makes an impact. It does, yeah. and um, and then it makes you have empathy for all the other revolutions that they were they were involved in, and as people of color, they also felt very aligned with some of the um, politics that were happening in the states for. For just human rights and sure. human rights, civil rights. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I don't know. They always sort of broke it down to me in a way. So, if theater wasn't there, it was a lot of political conversation, which you know can be very helpful to where you end up going. But um, where where does that first look? It at was going to be having law. some fun on the stage. Uh, where does that? Happen? Yeah, I know it was going to be law. Right. That's what I was I was going to be, you know, a good Ethiopian daughter, yeah. go to law school, and I remember. There's, I think there's many nationalities uh, yes. that would have had uh, the good daughter who the goes daughter. into that. Yes, yes. After they've realm. immigrated all the way here and gone through everything they've gone through. Yeah. Theater. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, you don't get points for that. No. But 
yeah so but I, I went actually I had this really great conversation with this professor when I was thinking of putting my stuff my work together for to apply for law school and he was just we were just having this conversation about what I wanted to do and why and he said you know it sounds like what you want to do is create options or new realities as opposed to sort of taking the law and and you know which is built to to be used in in the form that's in already you know um there's just something that like he said to me that sort of made me think about what about dreaming and imagining as opposed to upholding what we already have um but i still think it's obviously really important that people understand what their rights are but there was something that he said to me he also passed me a book that was called Legislative Theater, and it was by Augusto Boal, a Brazilian theater maker who did a lot of popular theater and political theater. And I was taken by him. And I started to just do pieces in my high school that were, I grew up in Scarborough, and I was just sort of, yeah, writing down what I saw in my own community and and, and sort of the potholes that a lot of my friends were falling into, and I just wanted to talk about it. And yeah, and then luckily a theater teacher saw what I was doing and said you know I think you have a knack for this you should apply you should go to school I was like what would I do you know she says apply as an actor and so I did I went I went to York as an actor and was horrible because I was always staring at everybody else on stage and trying to adjust the stage and really wanting to direct but not knowing what what I was I I wanted to be a part of choosing the work and and how people represented and and how it was con- contextualized it's true. You to an audience. To, you wanted to see people look better up there. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and how it was framed, like in, in, in dialogue with what's happening in our current climate. That was always important to me. It was the conversation that was happening. And anyways, uh, somebody, luckily, a teacher, um, realized that and said, I think you should try directing. Pretty incredible. You had people walk into your life very much like i mean that. it's always like that it right? Is, right you get those incredible people who who are even if generous. it's just a hey maybe you want to try this maybe you want to think you, about this you know looks like you're onto something here yeah yeah i also i also was part of our program in first year was we had to go downtown and see some shows which i hadn't done you know it was it, my theater history was just what I was learning in that year and you know some of the things my mother my, my parents love literature right. um, and poetry and my mom specifically Russian and African um, so I had some uh, but not a lot I didn't know like all of the classical work and I, I didn't have all of that in my it's a big hill to canon climb. no yeah. it wasn't that wasn't my it was very much about theater as a tool to give a voice to the community but so then when I went in there in my first year and saw these shows I was blown away specifically from one show that I saw um, directed by Daniel Brooks and co-created by Guillermo actually, who is the head of new play development here at Soul Pepper. Right. I saw it and I, I thought, what was that? Oh my goodness. It was called insomnia. Okay. It was the world that was created so specific, so alive. And I, I just kept, couldn't stop talking about it when I went back to school and my teacher was saying, you're talking a lot about the direction. Almost everything you're talking about is about the direction. So that was it. I applied for the directing program second year, and the the, the program was really vigorous. They only rigorous, sorry. They only had um, four people a year, so it really made you think about why you wanted to do it. Boot and, camp. Yeah, essentially, yeah. it was yeah. it was it was tough, and 
and thorough. <laughs> I, want, I want to backtrack to, to Scarborough for a moment. I uh, I read David Cherry Andy's book, Brother, which uh, <gasps> seemingly everybody yes. did. I, I, once I saw it in Chopper's Drug Mart, I knew you know, <laughs> it, had, it had done I'm its so thing. I'm so happy it's there. Yeah, I know. But, uh, you know, that there's another guy who's in our He's amazing. same era and came up in that region uh hip-hop a big part of that yep. book mm-hmm. uh i know big part of my life big part of your life what was scarborough it must have been 14 is an awkward age at the best of times mm-hmm. so then you're showing up to a, a brand new place very different than vancouver mm-hmm. yeah uh yeah you know it seems like this is this seems crazy that this happened in my lifetime but it was very segregated like i remember going to human resources and she was giving me the tour i was because i came midway through the year and she was like oh yeah <laughs> just a- extra awkward yeah there. extra awkward yeah yeah, yeah we'll get somebody to show you around and, she, and this uh a young black student came down and she was like yeah we'll show you the hill and uh, sure enough, there was the hill, and then there was all of the sections. There was the the section where the the Indian section where people sat underneath the library. There was the like all of these sections, and and like so when recess came out, everyone just filtered to their sections. Um, what is this jail? Right, and it was like it was a, it was quite something for me to see, and yeah. I was on the hill. I think that's what brought me to wanting to talk about things. I was I was I was an outside eye, even though I was really immersed in that in my in the community and on the hill Um, those became all my friends of course and that was just you know life Um, the hill what what happened on the hill it's just it was a hill it was a hill it was it was was in the commons and it was like the steps to the stage right it was called the hill yeah it was a lot about you know the things that we had in common it's obviously culturally specific right lots of West Indian um, members of the community and the slang and the hip hop and so are you starting to go to people's garages and watching DJ sets and figuring out hip hop? All, all that. that. Kind of stuff? I mean, yeah. I already was a big hip hop fan. Yeah. I, I don't know. That just was always my thing. So, um, like, okay, what year does hip hop come into your life? It's like <gasps> a, I mean, maybe it was just always kind of in the background. But. It was kind of in the background, but it got very serious when I was like 14, 15. 14, 15. Because Rap City was a thing at yeah. that time. And I would run home. Master T, was he on? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I would run home and it, it was only half an hour and it was like I remember that. vital that I made it on time and watch and recorded it. It was my good, VHS. I mean, it was a very political time for hip hop, but it was also kind of a fun time for hip hop too. just lyrically. Like there was a, a, there was a little more seemingly in my mind, a little more playfulness to it. There was. And it was also just <laughs> developing as a craft mm-hmm. too. And uh, I was just like an addict. Like I, just, mm. I, I bought everything I possibly could. Yeah, I did too. I yeah. remember even taking a, a trip down to New York to get like the first album. There was like a bit of a competition between all of us, like who would have the first, right? You know, who, who would get the album right when it came out? What was the big, the big records? Uh, well, at that, I mean, that year it was like Tribe Called Quest big. and Eve Gangstar had a new album, Massive. Hard to Earn, yeah, um, Black Moon. But you had then you had like the West Coast with De La Soul and Souls of Mischief and. Yeah. So the jazz influenced, you know, hip hop guys. You're, yeah, you're there, mentioning there a few was anyway, yeah. there was definitely that, but then yeah. there was Karis One and yeah. um He's still you know, I just saw him with DJ Scratch Bastard was on this show last year. Yeah, he he went out with KRS and I just was like he looks like exactly the same. <laughs> he looks great. You know, and he's a big guy of course still and and out there doing a show in Europe. 
you know, in front of a bunch of Scandinavian kids. And yeah, it was really something to see them. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of passion keeps you young. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was fun, right? Like fun to be immersed in that world. It was. It was fun to have somebody talking about the struggles and beautifully with beautiful orchestration and uh, out enemy. loud. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they were a couple years before that. Right. They were. Although I sort of feel like Fear of a Black Planet was kind of like. Yeah. I immersed, was younger. Immersed in all that. But yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. It was like at that point, it was like you bowed down. It was legendary. But yeah, um, I think it was me figuring out my artistic voice, figuring right. out that it was the text, you know, it was trying to figure out how not to talk at somebody with, but with somebody about things that are important. And then I saw it making a difference. Yeah. Seems like there's always been kind of a lot happening and a lot of focus in your life, sort of going back to our original mm-hmm. Apple Watch moment, yeah. moment of this conversation. Was that was? Are you able to relax? Are you able to just do nothing and be lazy? That's always been hard for me. Right. Yeah, it's been hard for me. I don't know. I'm an only child. Uh, to always inventing things to do right (laughs) um yeah and my husband's really active too i think i think i fell in love with him when i was like oh my god somebody who has more energy than me (laughs) um so this should be something yeah yeah. (laughs) so between us it's never quiet and then we have two little boys who have a lot of energy four and six Right. Yep. It's, yeah. It's pretty busy. It's it's busy. It wakes up. To, we wake up to music. It's often dance parties. What's the timing on that? Music? It's, no. The the wake up call. Oh, we've been trying to push it earlier and earlier. Oh, really? But we've been trying because we yeah we always we end up just it's a time that we all have together. Right. Before they go to school, and it's become more and more sacred because often mom's not home. After right. school, after work, and after school anymore. Right. Show happening, what have you. Shows happening. Sure. I try to do twice at two evenings a night at home, but it's it's sometimes it's not even that. Right. Um, and my husband often is shooting away, um, not here. So our mornings become really special when we really soak them up. So get up. Yeah. So we're like <laughs> six thirty, seven. Also, it, it's tough on the kids because sometimes I do get home and then they they want to stay up a little later. So like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's great though, right, kids? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like they will, yeah. They'll just bring you right back down to earth. And it happens fast. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We were just talking about like we can't believe it our oldest is going to be 7 next month and we're just it just shocks us. You look on your phone and there they are like they were just little and tiny figuring out how to talk and Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and now they're in like they're already talking about you know, social politics at school and what's going on. And right. this year has been a big change. Cause your your son too. is the age that you were when you were figuring out all these things. I know. It's, which it's which really is strange crazy. to think about, right? Like that's such a yeah. download that you had to. Yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. put it, you graph that on him. And it's like, oh boy. I know. You are with Art at the End of the World. My name is Mark Wigmore. We'll return with Soul Pepper Theater's artistic director, Wayne Mingesha, in just moments. You are with Art at the End of the World on the Zoomer Podcast Network. And we return now to my conversation with the fascinating and passionate theater voice, Wayne Mingesha. 
you go through this boot camp situation and then and what happens after that is it national theater school is it it's york for four years so i do the directing program for three more years yeah um and in my last year i do an independent study that i request to do through the dean of the 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 chair of the department i I just, I really wanted to look at Afri- the African-Canadian theater aesthetic. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. But I just was like, what does it mean? You know, yeah. um, because, you know, I had challenges trying to find an African-Canadian female monologue to audition with sure. at that time. Yeah. It was just, there were African-American female monologues, but not specifically African-Canadian. I've had Philip Aiken on a couple of times and, you know. Yeah, he, he can talk about this it, for for hours. It's just tough. It yeah. was, it, and it was, it really, uh, it really hit me. And I was like, what am, what does this mean? My, if I, this is the point that I'm studying, you know, and I'm going to take this research and it's going to inform my practice. And I haven't taken any time to look at, you know, what it means to make Canadian theater as an African or as a West Indian person, or and I just didn't find any of that research. And so I said, what if I did that? And I went to them and I said, look, this is what I want to do. This is my syllabus I want to propose. And uh, we don't teach, these these classes are not available at York, which is fine, I would like to do them. And they completely supported me. I went from coast to coast, researching and interviewing people in search of an African-Canadian theater aesthetic was what it was called, the paper right. I wrote. And uh, I met Janet Sears through it, who then hired me to be her assistant director on Adventures of a Black Girl in Search of God. And she was researching the African chorus. And so that was my main role as her assistant was to deal with the, I think we had like a 15 part chorus um, and what it meant to do, to have an African theater uh, chorus and what those aesthetics were. So you build it and it will come, you know? It just became exactly what I was looking for. And it it, it really did. I'm Those are still the people I'm collaborating with and right. inspired by today. Getting out there, getting across the country. Getting out there, putting it out there, saying what you want to yeah. the world. I'm a believer in that. And then it manifests, you know? <laughs> it's true, right? I you think know, so. It is got to be thing clear about what you want. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, all kinds of things will come your way. Do you see yourself as a singular vision person, or can you be sort of scattered and, or, and be a bit more renaissance and have a bunch of different pots cooking? Because I, I have very definite feelings on that. I am Mr. You know, can do about six different things, but I, I hate it. I, I look at people who are very good you know, management or, you know, some sort of vocation they have. And I'm just infinitely jealous of that. You I, know? D- I do have those moments right. where I'm like watching somebody do the job that they do. And it's like every day they do the same thing. Right. Ah, <sighs> clock oh, yeah. out and you are done. <laughs> um, but or just that they happen to be very, very, they're very skilled at skilled that particular at it, thing. Taught the 10,000 hour thing. Like yeah. they've just gone, like they're just really, yeah. Yeah. It's not me. I, I think I'm a person who, who brings people together and 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 sort of my like like a like a show that I'm directing many different elements and tries to find that common denominator that that vision that we're looking for and and listens to people and tries to um, make that vision coalesce with all of everybody's in, input it's a very organic process for me building yeah. a show yeah. I know what I, I know the questions I want to ask but the answers come from the collective you know it sounds like that's what you did on that trip a little bit is you know so yeah 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 exactly that's been me. I think. I, I think as a child, I, like I said, literally, at the feet of all of these my my uh, my elders and my parents, I was doing a lot of listening, making meaning of it for myself. Tell me about because uh, the two projects that that people always talked about before you got this gig here 
is uh, Dick Hank in my hair and Kim's Convenience, and those sort of show up. I've had Trey Anthony on my programs about two or three times. Hmm. Very specific individual. Very, uh, She's been very good to me, but I'm trying to imagine what it was like to take that project and, and take it where you, where you did on, on a big Mervish stage and hmm. what that was. Well, I met Trey when I was doing Adventures for Black Girl in Search of God. Right. And she said, I had this, this one-woman show, seven monologues, and I'm going to perform in them. She had just because... She, she couldn't perform them all on this 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 evening. She had different actresses play them, and she I think we both took note and that it was like a really special ensemble piece. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it developed. And uh, where where were you at basically at that point? What was your role? I was still at your. Uh, she asked me to come on as director at right. that point. Yeah, right. um, and I was just finishing school right. at York and doing these shows as part of my my last year independent study. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. What do you think about it? Well, again, I said, I think I said it to the audience, to the world, you know, like these are the things I would like to do. And I mean, yes, it was, it was really became a TV beautiful show. Option, uh, opportunity. It did become a TV show. Toured about, remounted numerous yeah, times. Yeah, we got to direct Mervish it in stage. London, yeah. um, uh, the Hackney Empire, and in, yeah, in the States. And it was quite the ride. Yeah, but it, def- it definitely started off not as sexy. It definitely started off with <laughs> us, you know, taking a Greyhound bus to New York when we got into the New York Fringe, and and some we had to we had to take apart our hairdressing chair and stick it under the bus, and we all stayed in one apartment that had no hot water, and it was like twelve of us. Lots of parts of this business are not sexy. No, and those, but those are the parts that, of course, become the most romantic when you course. retell them. Yeah. You know, and they're things that will, I think will bond us. I for wish life. we could do it again. I know, I know, <laughs> exactly. Now, and it's like, oh, if you could just be back on that subway that took an hour, and where we had to have one person on wake up call right. at the end of the show. <laughs> and what? And what was the story with Kim's convenience? What was your? Kim's happened when I was at Soul Pepper. Okay. So. Um, Ince was actually an artist that was in at York when I was there and he was two years older than me and I just was like a huge fan. Yeah. He was an actor and I just every show he was in, I just thought he was just he was the magnet for me. He's just such an incredible performer and really honest and I just he never went out of my mind. And so when we were doing Soul Pepper Academy in my first year, um, we were talking about different artists and I spoke about Ince. I was like, I really think Ince should be here good <laughs> call at stratford at that time good call Wayne. yeah i mean <laughs> it was an easy one for me you know um anyways he had i mean he still auditioned and everything but right. I mean, it was very obvious to everybody he, the talent he was and um but because i did suggest him they made me his mentor you know you have somebody who's already been here which yeah. i mean was strange to me because i looked up to him but it was just a great opportunity for us to be to, to meet me weekly and talk about what we were doing and everything else and he mentioned that he had this play that it was a kind of a personal story and um and then i read it and it was fantastic and he was still developing it and did, then, did it jump off the page the way i imagined it too because i remember seeing it for the first time and just thinking this is it's all there you know like he the, these characters are so well formed and the aesthetic and the setting was you know it was also specific and it was also charming yeah I think what was clear to me is that it's a unique voice and we haven't heard it. Right. You know, and that I, was the same thing that was clear to me with Trey. Um, both of them, it's their first play. You know, it's a, it, came, it comes from a very passionate, personal place. And yeah, he was dedicated to working on it. Um, and, I, and also the voice was very original. You yeah. know, Ince has a very specific sense of humor, um, and, and which is what makes it 
I think the comedy really unique um, on even on the TV show. Like his, you can you can feel him in it. Yeah. So I think that's all I knew, and that that's the hunch I often go on is, what are we adding to the ecology? You must feel good about what happened to that show. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's now very proud to be part of it. And now it's now this thing it's doing all right all around around the world around on the Netflix, world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's pretty incredible for the entire acting team and everybody involved. It's uh, been quite the story. Yeah, uh, I got to direct on the TV show last season, which was fun. Oh, you did? I did, yeah. That was good, right? It like, was wonderful yeah. to get to, yeah, yeah, to get to be in the store. Be in the store. Be in the store. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ince and I had a lot of fun on set together. Yeah, so he hangs around on set like he's there. Oh, yeah, because he's, yeah. he's an executive right. producer, so for so sure. So he's around. You've been around too. You, New York, uh, California, LA, and obviously with your husband as well. That must have been good to just start to see how some of the big, you know, towns work as far as film and television are concerned, as far as what the different theater scenes look like. Definitely. Yeah. Very important to me. And bring it all back here. Yeah. Yeah. I had to do my walkabout. You know, I just had to, I felt really proud of the things that I had accomplished in Toronto and. I yeah I wanted to continue to 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 meet new people and new collaborators, so I moved to New York before I met my husband. Right, which was really it's a big step. Important, yeah. It was crazy. I had a tiny little apartment. I could reach my kitchen from my bedroom, and <laughs> but it was amazing. I got to I just you know try to see as much theater as possible and meet people and. You now had that bedrock of theater you had experienced here, mm-hmm. and and it was now. Okay, let's really, yeah, branch out and see how they do it in the big leagues. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. To me, I felt like Toronto has all the talent it always has, but we've only sort of been on the circuit um, in the commercial way, you know, where we're bringing in tours and stuff. And I was just, yeah, it just was important to me to to get a sense of how other development was happening, and and it was great. I met I met a lot of people that I'm still connected to now. Yeah. Which is very useful for this job. It's fascinating. It feels like everything that you were thinking about, even as a 10-year-old, it just is so perfect for this moment we're in and where people are looking for change. And there are, we do need, desperately need other voices telling stories. And we do need greater sense of empathy in a world that seems more and more divisive. As much as there were a lot of circumstances that got you back here to Salt Pepper. It must feel like, hey, this is the right fit for me right now and the right moment for me to be really doing this this thing that I've always wanted to do. You'd think I would think about it in those terms. Right. But I, I try not to think about it in such a large of course. context. Yeah. You know, I think to my husband, I just said, this is an important time to go back home for me. Is that tough for him? Um, yeah, I can't say it wasn't. It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's that very much his community is there. He's from there. So he got to go back a lot or? He goes back quite often. Right. Um, but although, you know, the shows that he got this year were in Paris and Vancouver. So, you know, which it doesn't often. We don't actually, he doesn't often work in LA. He just right. gets the work there. Right. Um, it's where the meetings are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But he understood, you know, when I said to him, it just feel like there are such unique stories in Toronto and we have such a, we have, we have an ability to really reflect in a, a city that is, has so much talent, first of all, and, and has so much diversity and is unique, you know? Mayor Torrey always says it's the biggest calling card. It's the number one thing people ask him about is our 
cosmopolitan, our diversity, our what this city has been able to do, even though it's got its problems, of course. Yeah. But it's it is special. It is special. In that and it regard. feels different than LA, it feels different than London, it feels different than New York. Yeah. To me, um I understood that. Also my parents live here and my kids, you know, being able to grow up with their grandparents, um, it just all felt like it was the the right moment. I also have a lot of respect for the artists here at this organization and 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 the staff and the administrators, everybody here. It's yeah. With all that we've just said from a personal standpoint, I mean, I think it's fantastic, like you say, great for your kids, a, per, a great opportunity for you and everything you've worked towards. But we're now sort of, you know, it's it's interesting. I went through sort of a, a, a Me Too situation the exact same time that Soul Pepper went through its. I was at Jazz FM. I was reading about uh, Soul Pepper and Jazz FM in the same, you know, breath and in, in the same page, basically, as I was reading. How have you been able to, to carry that? I mean, you've talked about it a fair amount, but you're offered this job. The person that was, was here before resigned and so on. Was that baggage for you? Or, or was it, you know what, this is a great opportunity and we're just going to turn the page. You know, there was a year between me coming here and yeah. that happening. Sure. Um, so I would say, you know, Alan Dilworth was a big part of that transition. You know, right. he took on a lot. Right. And quite incredibly. As, at the same time, that was very much the headline. It was like, okay, well, okay, so this person is gone and here comes this new person. So you must have had to take pause before you thought, okay, I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to carry some of this burden because yeah. you do have to. Yeah, you know. yeah. You know, I've spoken to other artistic directors around the world who have come in and after a situation like this. Yeah. Often women. Right. I think we have always sort of, these are the values we've always held as far as making sure that people feel safe and heard and respected. And so that's not a, that's not a change. But mm -hmm. I think what we're understanding is that we need to be much more explicit Gone are the days of the unwritten rules. Unwritten rules. And then yeah. also just like speaking about things so right. that other people don't have to always have to do it. As much as it feels like it's so specifically about this company, it's all over our sector. Sure. It's well, there's a story like every it's all over month, our sector. It's all over somewhere our in the world. It's what right? we do. You know, yeah. we, we don't play. We, we don't have we don't have tools. We don't have machinery. We have our like our bodies and our souls. Mm -hmm. It's just a it's a it's a vulnerable business. Um It is, right? It I mean is. that's I think that's part of it. It's right? part of it. That, that it, people engage in a different way than I would if I was going to my office job or what have you. Not that things don't happen in those situations, but it is very specific. It's very specific. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's something that obviously as people are bringing up things from all kinds of, uh, you know, years ago now throughout time, it's right. always been a thing and it will always be a thing in some ways, you know, so it's I'd like just, to see that. You maybe some things start to change, right? Well, I think uh, just the Can't conversation will yeah. just cha make it change, you know, um, and people feeling empowered to speak up ultimately. Right. And I think that was the problem is that people understood things and also were under the impression that they couldn't say anything. And that I think has changed. Yeah, I think my, my job is very much to continue to do what I, as we talked about my whole life history, right. I'm trained to do, which is listen. Yeah. I'll do a lot of listening and trying to figure out ways to move forward. So 2020 must, this is a moment for you. I mean, there's, you directed part of 2019. We've, you know, you've been a part of this tapestry now for a while, but this is, I guess the season where it says, okay, this has got a lot of my heart. 
Definitely. Yeah. I think directing Streetcar and the release of this were both pressure that right. I felt, you know, of, of really trying to stay true to myself and reveal myself and reintroduce myself to the city. Right. Which is why I think we went with sort of a season title this year, just to really try to get people um, as much access to our thinking um, I mean, as possible. One of the old jokes I used to hear was that, I mean, I've always loved Soul Pepper. It's been the place where I can see some of the great plays of the 20th century and mm. beyond, obviously. But there was a sense of you kind of knew what you were going to get from mm. this company. And you would hear kind of maybe some in-jokes from people who weren't working necessarily for Salt Pepper or what have you. And that it uh, attracted a certain kind of crowd and, and on and on and on. I mean, we can be so hard on our successful theater companies or, or anything that's successful in this country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but, uh, but that was the thing. So uh, on some level, you must have thought, okay, I, I, I have to stay true to the mm-hmm. legacy of this, but it's my job to also come in and, and do something new and shake it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Was that the feeling? For sure. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I think... We need to take a leap. Here. We need to take a leap. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's why they hired me, is um, to try to bring myself to it as much as I can. And, and, and those are... The truth is I, I am interested in both where we came from and where we're going, you know? I, I, I spent two years here in the Academy because I think it is important to recognize as the greatest plays that's ever ever been written so and, do i yeah i don't want to lose those why why should we yeah um but i also think it's important to open the scope of what that means and to look internationally um so how do you balance that that's a trick how do you balance it yeah. well i think that what i did this season was i said to myself you know not not talking about when a play was written but why a play was written right um, and looking at the courage of the playwright and the playwright who want to, 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 to change or add something to the theater ecology. That was sort of our framework, um, which enabled us to put plays that were written, you know, 100 years apart in the same season, um, but tying them together as like kindred spirits. Right. <laughs> um, so that's why you'll see like, yeah, Chekhov and Stephen Adley Gerges together. Let's talk about uh, the repertoire that you're going through here. Uh, Mother's Daughter, uh, the People Saw the Last Wife, The Virgin Trials, it's Kate Hennig back with you again. Yeah. And not a big surprise and, and sure. maybe the right choice, too. Mm-hmm. I think we definitely wanted to to complete the trilogy. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's the lacking of surprise. Yeah, yeah, for sure. People want to see how this goes. Yeah, but yeah. also it wasn't hard for us to find, you know, her story. Like to find that sort of we all of them have this titles that right. talk about how they've contributed to theater ecology, and and Kate has, right. you know, um, big time, big time. Yeah, big so. star, really. I would say. Yeah, yeah, and 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 taking those stories, the, the Tudor queens, and making them in the center is something is a shift you know from the way that we tell history you're going to direct again i'm going to direct again jesus hopped the a train yeah tell me about that show i just it's um not unlike tennessee and uh, and and the complications of streetcar um there's a lot of gray you know everybody's complicated and people you know especially in this moment we want to put everybody in boxes we want it to be clean and clear who is good who is bad and I find that really problematic and difficult. I don't, I don't think we learn or grow from that. 
this play, he's ha- I think he's engaging us in a conversation of rehabilitation. What does it mean? What accountability do we have to those who've made mistakes in the world? Um, and are, does that mean that they're forever uh, a discarded part of our humanity? Or, or what does it mean? What relationship do we have to them? How are we accountable by when the system really fails people? And when it fails people in a, in a, in a particularly targeted demographic? Um, I like the gray area. It, it provides a certain positive anxiety i find as a theater goer Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. i I like that i'm having i'm struggling to Mm -hmm. find my the moral compass and Mm -hmm. the everything that that the characters are beaming at me yeah i think it's what what we aim to do in the theater first time for Chekhov Siegel is that right for us yeah 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 Yeah. long (laughs) history with with Chekhov right yeah first time with Siegel very exciting yeah and what what compelled you to want to put it in um well specifically Chekhov did do something very specific to the course of theater as far as moving away from melodrama and just what he's contributed but also this particular play specifically talking about art and what what it means and and generations and and I think we are in a moment where we are talking about change and 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 how it affects the different generations and Daniel Brooks as I told you was somebody that inspired me to shift into the directing program um, so it was really special for him to be in the season for yeah. me he's also had a great career here at Soul Pepper um, and taught a lot of our academy and so some of the students that he's taught are in the show um, it's a celebration of our company and uh, he's an incredible director so I'm excited to see all of these artists are people I am proud are in our community right and that's something I can say you know um, I think this Draw Me Close piece is um, with, with um, the VR experience is something that our audiences have never experienced. I did an entire uh, uh, whole arts piece on that. On that show? On that show, yeah. I did mean, you see it? No, I haven't seen it. Oh. But when you guys announced, I was like, I better learn about this and oh, talk about this. Oh, okay. And so, I, you know, I pulled clips of old interviews and, and uh, had a look at what I could see online and what have you. So it, it looks very exciting. Oh, good. Don't good. you think? You've seen it. Did you get your ticket? No, I haven't got my ticket. <laughs> you better hurry up. <laughs> yeah, maybe I, maybe I can call in, uh, you know. We might be able to Maybe we'll make straight. a special phone call. <laughs> the way we imbibe Soul Pepper is we come and sit down and we sit in this dark theater and it's all spectacular and mysterious and funny and all these wonderful things, but it's a lot of hard work that goes into it. And just really great to meet you today and spend some time and learn a bit about your story. So thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you as well. Great to speak with that woman, Wayne Mangesha. What a story. And her Jesus Hop the A-Train continues at Soulpepper Theatre through February 23rd. Soulpepper.ca for info and tickets. And always a good spot to visit if you want to just plan some theatre in the next uh, few weeks or months. This is Wayne's season, and uh, it's, it's looking really great. So have a look, soulpepper.ca. I also want to thank our sponsors. Couldn't do it without them. Red Eye Media and Crow's Theater. And by the way, a reminder to go see Secret Life of a Mother, also running through the 23rd, crowstheater.com for timing and tickets. Thanks for listening. We're back on Thursday with another edition of Remix, the art at the end of the world alternative episodes a recent 2020 juno nominee ron davis uh, sort of a jazz meets classical guy he will be my guest you can listen to episodes at classicalfm.ca art at the end of the world.com and of course wherever you enjoy podcasts itunes google stitcher and soundcloud spotify as well whatever app 
you use for your podcasting needs. Our Twitter handle is at Art at the End. We're available on Facebook. You can find all the episodes, by the way, at classicalfm.ca. My name is Mark Wigmore. We'll speak to you Thursday and for as long as we can. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.